All right. Well, if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to the book of Revelation. The very last book in our Bible is where we're going to be uh, this morning. We're going to be continuing on in this series looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. Well, a couple months ago, I, was, uh, I found myself in what I will call uh, an introvert's nightmare, all right? It was one of these social situations where it's just a little bit awkward and you don't really know how you're supposed to handle yourself. And so I, I was invited, we were invited to a dinner party and it was at a restaurant. And so if you've ever been to them, some of them, you know, you get these long tables. And so everyone that we knew at this party was at one end of the table and we were at the other end with no one we knew. And so we were kind of trapped, and it's a loud restaurant, so you can't actually talk to the people that we had come there to support and see. And so we found ourselves just talking to just the people that we were beside. And so I, I began to talk with the guy beside me, and it actually turned out to be a very nice guy. It was actually a very lovely evening altogether. And so I asked him what he did, and he said, well, he runs his own business and does these things. And so he very politely responds back, well, what do you do? And it's always an interesting thing when I tell people what I do, especially when I've first met them, because I get two very different reactions to, well, I'm a pastor. On the one hand, I get people who immediately begin to look for any and everything else that they could talk about at that moment, anything to change the topic. And so oftentimes I'll end up saying, well, my wife is a math teacher, and they're like, great, let's talk about math. And uh, immediately that becomes the response. However, actually, more often than not, the response I get is, really? I've never met a pastor before. Tell, tell me about what you do. I have no idea what you do. And that's actually how this one turned out. The guy said, I've, I've never met a pastor. I've never been to church. I actually have not one clue as to what you do in your job. Some of you might even be thinking that yourself. What does he do Sunday to Sunday? <laughs> does, he, does he do things or is it just here right now? Well, so I began to talk about my week and began to explain, well, okay, what it looks like to, to prepare a sermon, uh, all the meetings that we've got with different staff, coordinating admin stuff, uh, some of the counseling that happens, the outreach opportunities that we work on, and all this kind of stuff. And so he began to kind of understand, he began to relate it to his own experience. And so he said, oh, so it's kind of like you're running your own business. I said, sure, you know, there, there's some parallels there. And so we began to talk about, you know, here, here are some of the goals. So, like, what, what kind of goals do you work towards? So we talked about some of the things that we wanted to do, some of the outreach things. And he began to talk about his own experience of, of running businesses and kind of, you know, creating strategies to, to make certain things work. And I realized that there was still a difference that we had missed. I said, well... I think that's true, and in a business, you can do cost-benefit analysis, and you can quantify, you know, here's your sales, and, and here's what you spent, and all this kind of stuff, and you can work that out. I said, the problem is, in a church, it doesn't always work that way, because the problem is, in a church, it's a lot harder to, to, to put numbers to certain things. How do, you, how do you put a number to the relationships that are formed? How do you put a number to the change that happens in people's lives, in their understanding of the Bible or the gospel? Or, or how do you put a number to faithfulness to the Word of God? It's a lot harder to quantify some of those things. And I think even within Christian circles, we, we sometimes tend to look at the church through very external lenses. Right? We judge churches based on their, their, their worship style, how, how cool the service seems, how funny the pastor is, how big the building is, how many people go there, and all these different things that we have, these criteria we have to judge a church. And yet, actually, 
what we probably should be asking is, well, how does, how does God judge the church? What, what are the markers that God has for his church? How does he assess a particular church, and how should that change how we look at it? And so this morning, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at this church that God is writing to. I'm going to look at the criteria that he has for a, what I'm going to call a healthy church. So if you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to follow along with me. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 8, the letter to the church in Smyrna. This is what Jesus writes to the church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's as far as we're going to read. Would you bow your heads in a word of prayer with me? Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you that that you look at our lives through a different lens, Father, that, that you actually call us to faithfulness. Father, I thank you that you send us your spirit to help and encourage and support and guide us through this task. And so, Father, this morning as we open your word, I pray, would you give us an ear to hear what you say to us here today in this church? Father, we pray, would you be at work in our hearts and in our lives that we might be faithful to you? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are looking at this letter to the church in Smyrna, and this is one of the few letters, there's only two, that Jesus writes to these seven churches that he offers no correction. There's no rebuke in this letter, no no correction to the church in Smyrna. It doesn't mean they were a perfect church, I, I don't think so. I think it actually means that there was no major flaw, there was nothing wrong that was, you know, glaringly obvious that Jesus needed to correct. And so in many ways, this ought to be a model for us. Here is something we should aspire to. Here is a goal of a healthy church because that, I hope, is our goal, that we would be a people that God has no reason to correct. And so this morning, I want us to kind of look through this and say, what are the markers of this church? See, they are commended for their willingness to endure suffering, poverty, and disgrace, Right? It's very, mu- very much the opposite of an outward sign. Outwardly, it looked like things were going bad for this group of people, and yet Jesus turns that around. Right? He doesn't care about their numbers, doesn't care about their worship style, doesn't mention how cool they are. He looks at their heart. And so this morning, what I want us to see is I want us to look at this example that through poverty and slander, we do not need to be afraid but can be faithful unto death. That is the mark of a healthy church. So let's look at this a little bit more. Start off by looking at poverty and slander. Look at verse 8 with me. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, 
the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, I know you might kind of read that and think, oh, that's kind of a nice introduction. It's talking about Jesus. He's the one who's going to be writing this letter. But actually, as we've noticed already throughout the book of Revelation, there are really no wasted words. It's not as if he's just kind of giving a throwaway sentence. Actually, this was very specifically written to this church in this city. See, the city of Smyrna was in, uh, it's in Turkey on sort of the western border, and, and the history of that city was that at one point, about 500 years before this letter was written, that it was a large, prosperous city state. They were doing well, and then they got overrun. The city was destroyed down to rubble. There was nothing left after the invaders destroyed them. And so they were reduced to ashes, and for 200 years, they didn't have anything there. There was just a few people living among the ruins until finally the Greeks came through and said, we could actually make something of this place and began to build it back up. See, the history of Smyrna was a city that at one point was dead and now is alive. In fact, now it was one of the leading cities in all of the Asian province. In fact, they were competing with different cities. So Ephesus that we looked at last week and Pergamum that we're going to look at next week. There was a competition going on. Who would be the premier city in Asia? And they were trying different ways to accomplish this. And so they actually had this competition. Who could build the temple to the Roman emperor? And they would be the chief city. And actually Smyrna got that honor to build this temple to the emperor. They were thinking of themselves as the first and foremost. And so when Jesus writes to this church that is seemingly being swallowed up by this city, he writes to them and says, I am the first and the last. I am the one who was dead and has come to life. You need to realize what your city is bragging about. I have the real thing. And so this is one who has conquered death, he will now speak to this church. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's quite the introduction to give to this church. But what we kind of already gather here is that this is a church that's undergoing some fire from their city. They're undergoing persecution. People are attacking them. And see, what happened was, in in the very Roman-centered city in which they lived, being a Christian wasn't just sort of this little, you know, sideline thing of like, well, I don't know, they're kind of a weird group, but we don't really care about them. Actually, that's not how they were viewed. You see, they were trying to be the most Roman of Roman cities. They wanted to be the first, and so a group of people who refused to worship the emperor was not just, you know, a sideline issue. That was a problem. That was something that was actually going to cause them harm as a city that was going to be problematic, and so they actually had some hostility toward the church. They deeply disliked them, and so it even came to the point where it seems as though they could not get work any longer, right? It had an economic impact on them. They weren't allowed to go through and and work in their trades. People wouldn't buy their goods. They might not have been able to even buy at the market, or even they got some extortion price that they had to pay, and really they had nothing they could do about it. 
They were kind of helpless in this point, and so the church becomes quite poor in a wealthy city, and yet what does Jesus say? But you are rich. But you are rich. Right? Even though, yeah, you, you guys are, are failing, you have very little money to yourself, but you are spiritually wealthy. See, it's not the external factor that would make a difference. Actually, it was what was going on inside that mattered. In fact, that's exactly what we see as he talks about their Jewish opponents as well. This is verse 9, those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I mean, the risen Jesus doesn't seem to pull punches here right? He is straightforward, and he says, I can see the heart. I know what they are doing. In fact, they're not following after me. The Jewish people are to be the people of God, and yet what Jesus is saying is they are not the people of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, Paul's point here is that the chosen people of God is not a matter of background or heritage or physical markers. It's a matter of those who follow him from the heart. And so Jesus says to this church, do not be worried by those who have the outward appearance of spirituality. Instead, be faithful through it. Do not be surprised that you are attacked for your faith. See, this wasn't just some sort of external thing that was happening. It wasn't just that they were being attacked for what they believed. This was a spiritual battle. Right? That's, that's why Jesus always puts it in a spiritual understanding. This was not just because they said the wrong thing. It was because there is a spiritual attack against them. In fact, Paul in 2 Timothy warns Timothy, makes him a promise. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's quite the promise, isn't it? That's quite the promise we don't usually put up on our fridges and think, oh, that just makes me feel warm and fuzzy. No, that's the kind of promise that makes you kind of worried. In fact, it's probably the kind of promise that should make us think about our own lives, about how much persecution, how much attack we actually go through. If the promise is that all those who are desiring to live a godly life, will face this. I, I think sometimes we are far too comfortable. We are far too concerned about staying away from anything that could harm us. I think sometimes we are far too Canadian, if I can use that analogy. We, we, are, we are polite. We say sorry. We're not going to do or say anything offensive. We're going to kind of be that gentle, moderate medium all the way through. I think sometimes we're just cowards, that we're not willing to actually speak out, we're not willing to actually talk about what we believe and what the Bible actually has to say. I think we've taken every possible step to avoid this kind of suffering because we're scared of it. We're scared of what might happen if our coworkers find out what we genuinely believe. We're scared of what might happen if we lose our job or if we lose you know, a, a, a hobby, a pastime, whatever else it might be. Yet, in contrast to this, we have this church in Smyrna that is willing to give up their livelihood to be faithful to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we should go to the other extreme 
and now just start being obnoxious about everything we believe or just being belligerent. No, in fact, Peter warns us against that. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, you, if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Far from being just belligerent towards others, the call is to be doing good, to be representing God and willingly taking the consequences of that sometimes. Peter even says it is a gracious thing to suffer this way. And so the question is, are we actually prepared to do that? Are we actually prepared to to take on suffering? If this is a mark of a healthy church, being ready to suffer for the name of Christ, I, I worry sometimes we are so invested in our comforts that we can't even consider the possibility of doing that that we are so invested in, in our nice houses and our cars and our trucks and our toys and everything else that we have that we aren't ready to give it up. We're not ready to actually give up these things for the name of Jesus should it come. I think the spiritual war for us looks a little bit different, less openly hostile and actually far more the danger of being just at ease with the way things are. See, I I genuinely pray we don't face this kind of persecution, but here's what I pray more, that we'd actually be ready for it. More than that it wouldn't come, that we would be a people ready to give up our very lives for the name of Jesus, that we're ready to take on this kind of suffering and lay everything down for his name. See, this is what the church in Smyrna is being commended for. It's their willingness to suffer for the sake of Jesus. And so Jesus then tells them, all right, because of this, do not be afraid. Look back with me at verse 10. Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not be afraid. This command, do not fear, do not be afraid, we find actually all throughout the Bible. Right? In fact, we just, we just came across it in our Christmas series as, as the angel visits Mary and Zechariah. The first thing the angel says is, do not be afraid. Right? We see Jesus talking to his disciples and says, do not be afraid. Paul writes to the churches and says, do not fear anything that is frightening. But it really seems like this is the moment to be afraid, doesn't it? As we continue on in verse 10, it says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation, right? Here's what's coming up. You're going to go to jail. And, and by the way, this is, this is Roman jail, right? We think of jail as, well, that's the punishment, right? That's where you go when you are being punished for whatever you have done. That's not how Roman jails worked. Roman jails were the waiting place. That's where you waited until you went to trial, and at that point you'd either be released or you'd be executed. Going to jail was not just a nice thing, and Jesus says, well, don't worry, it's only going to be for 10 days, and you can imagine them sitting there going, and what happens after that? What happens at the end of 10 days? You didn't really specify what's going on. You just said, be faithful to death, so is that what's happening after 10 days? Jesus doesn't make it. It seems like this is a good moment to be afraid, doesn't it? Right? They always say, this is not the time to panic. This seems like the time to panic. Certainly, that's what we should be doing. 
And yet, Jesus says not to. Or, or maybe more specifically, we could say not to be afraid of that suffering. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says, look, I, you don't need to be afraid of those who can just kill you. That, that's all they can do. You should actually be afraid of the one who, after he's killed you, has the authority over your eternal soul. Consider that. That is actually where you ought to be afraid. But here's, here's the, I don't know, irony of that. Is the one who actually fears God has nothing to fear. See, there's a promise that we get in Jesus, and it is that, yes, God has the authority over our eternal soul, and rightly we ought to fear him, but Jesus came to us. God sent Jesus out of his love for us so that he would come and he would die in our place, so that that infinite weight of our sins, Jesus, the infinite God, might come and bear on our behalf so that anyone who trusts in him would be saved, so that anyone who repents of their sin, trusts in him, does not have to worry about what will happen after we die. See, that's why Jesus can say to this church, do not be afraid, because what will happen to you next will not change whether you suffer or not. This cannot change your eternal place before God. This suffering isn't going to nullify what Jesus has done for you. In fact, he ends this letter by saying, uh, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It won't enter into that judgment. And so do not be afraid of everything that they can bring against it. None of it can separate you from Jesus. In fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, he says, what can separate us from the love of God? And then he lists this whole bunch of things amongst, uh, amongst one of them is suffering and persecution and all these things. And then he says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is the promise that they have. So they do not need to be afraid of anything they might face. None of it can separate them from Jesus. But I think there's a second reason here as well. Verse 10 says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. There is a purpose to this. In fact, there's a goal for what is about to happen to them because some of you might, might well ask, okay, but, but why is this going to happen? Certainly God is, is big enough, is powerful enough to, to stop this from happening. Why do they have to suffer at all? And the answer we get is here, God actually has a purpose in this. He is looking to test them. He's looking to, to, to reveal something about them. Right? In fact, Jesus does this with his disciples on earth. Listen to John chapter 6. It comes to us in the uh, feeding of the 5,000. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, his disciple, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus asks this little question, not, not, not to 
cause Philip to, to look foolish or anything like that. He's trying to bring out what Philip's faith actually looks like, what it's actually consisting of. Jesus already knows what he is going to do. Jesus even already knows what Philip is going to say, a test he kind of fails, by the way. But instead, he gives him this test so Philip can actually see, so we can actually learn what our faith genuinely looks like. See, I think so often we, we get caught up in all of our comforts and we are thinking to ourselves, you know, I, I, I'm good. I, I'm, not, I'm not struggling in my faith at all. And sometimes God gives us tests to actually show us that there are some bumps there we hadn't dealt with. Right? It's a little bit like sitting on the couch and watching football and going, I could have caught that. I could have done that. And then you actually get out on the field, and after five yards, you're like wheezing and like, oh, okay, I can't do that. You couldn't even run that far, let alone catch it. See, that's what God does to us sometimes. He puts us out onto the field and says, all right, give it a shot. But it's not just to expose ourselves. It's not just to expose our weaknesses. Actually, it's how God is going to use and build us up as well. Listen to Romans chapter 5. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says we can actually rejoice when we face this suffering. We can actually celebrate. Why? Not because the suffering is good. No, that isn't. But it's because that suffering is going to produce something in us. It'll produce endurance and character and hope. And because God has filled us with his Holy Spirit, we will actually begin to change through it. He will build us up in our faith through all of these experiences. And so Paul can say, I rejoice. I am glad when these things happen. Why? Because I know God is going to use it for my good. Yes, Satan is going to throw you, church, into jail. He is going to mean evil against you, but God will mean it for good. God will use it for your good. The church has no need to fear the suffering that's going to come up because it will not take us away from God, and God is going to use it for our good. Jesus is on the throne. The church does not need to be afraid. So yeah, poverty and slander are going to come. But do not be afraid. And the final thing Jesus says to this church is, be faithful. Verse 10 finishes with the line, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus calls this church, be faithful unto even death, right? There are some of you who are going to be thrown into prison, and very likely this moment of death is coming sooner than you might think. And so Jesus says to this church that he loves, that he has no fault with. He doesn't say, run away. He doesn't say escape from it. He says, actually what I want you to do is be faithful through it. Be faithful even to the very end. Why? Because there is a crown that is waiting for you at the end. There is a prize that is yours that is eternal life in heaven. See here, the, the image of a crown isn't one of, of royalty. 
It's actually of a prize. So if you think of the ancient Greeks and how they did the Olympics, right? They didn't get medals at the end of it. That's not what the athletes got. No, they got a crown, right? Usually it was made of olive, uh, olive branches and kind of curled together and laid on their head. It was the prize for the one who conquered, who was able to make it through to the very end. They received the prize. Jesus says, this is the prize that is waiting for you. For everyone who is faithful unto the end, there is the prize of eternal life waiting for you. Jesus actually tells us that because he wants us to be seeking after it, focused on it, moving towards it. That is the goal laid in front of us. In fact, Paul writes at the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. For all who would place their trust in Jesus Christ, this is the reward that we would spend eternal life with Jesus. And so the call for the church, be faithful. Be faithful even amongst all the things that we are doing. Look, I know there's always so many things that go on in church, and there's so many things, even good things, that can distract us, right? There's all manner of, of, of I don't want to name ministries because they're all good, but they can become distractions. We can become obsessed with, with having the right style or, or, or the amount of, of stuff we have or whatever else it might be, and it can distract us from what God says is most important, and that is that we would be faithful unto the end. I think we do that as churches. We do that as individual believers as well. We get ourselves distracted with all manner of different things that happen, that need to happen day after day. We get lost in kind of the daily grind of chores and work and kids and, you know, all the, the things we do during the week and all of these things, driving around, becoming a taxi and all that stuff. And we begin to lose track of what we are called to do. We begin to take our eyes off of that prize that is waiting for us. So, so can I ask you, would you make it your genuine prayer? Lord, if I am forgotten when I die, if there is nothing left of my time here on earth but one thing, would it be this, that I was faithful, that I was faithful unto the very end because really little else will ever matter. Lord, would you let me be faithful to you to the very end? See, sometimes we just need reminders about what this looks like. We need reminders of what it looks like to, to live the life fully until the end, faithful to his call. So I want to tell you a story. It's a true story about one of the, I think, most likely, one of the original hearers of this letter. It's a man from the church in Smyrna. He grew up there. His name was Polycarp. I know it's a funny name, but he was a pretty impressive man. He was, in fact, one of the students of John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. His student, a guy named Polycarp, was in this church in Smyrna. Now, by the end of Polycarp's life, he had become one of the leaders in the church. He was a bishop, and he was teaching, and just as Jesus said, there was persecution. 
In fact, the, the city decided they were done with these Christians and had grown tired of them, and so they began to round up various different Christians and actually put them to death, and finally they came for Polycarp. And so they sent a Roman guard to go and arrest him, and the guards came into his house, and they actually got a little bit embarrassed because they said, we're here for a man named Polycarp, and this fragile old man stood up, and they went, this is who we're here to arrest? This, this guy? Like, I mean, what is he going to be doing to us? And in fact, he came out and he says, I have some food and drink for you guys. Would you like something? And so they sat and they ate with him as they were arresting him. They brought him away, and he spent time in prison and came to his trial. His trial took place in the middle of a coliseum stadium full of people as there were wild animals and gladiators who were going to be put to death there as well. And when he walked out into the arena, his prosecutors looked at him and again felt sorry for him. And so they said, look, look, you got to just change your mind, please. They said, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, down with the atheists. By the way, a little bit of historical trivia, Christians at this point were known as atheists, right? It's because we didn't have idols, right? Idols were the gods. We didn't have any. We were atheists. Anyways, history has a sense of irony. But, but they tried again and again to convince him to, to repent, to, to recant his testimony, to turn away. They threatened him with wild animals. They threatened him by, with burning on the stake. They said, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp's answer to them was this. Eighty-six years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp had heard what Jesus called him to do. He heard this letter, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown. And Polycarp was burned at the stake for his faith. But he did not give up his faith. He was faithful unto the very end. See, this is the example of a faithful church ready to give up everything for the name of Jesus Christ. Even though poverty and slander will come, do not be afraid, but be faithful unto death. This is the call for our church as well. See, the call is to be faithful all the way up and to our final breath. Surely that means everything else in between as well. It's the call to be faithful every single day to what God has called us to do. It is all of your time, all of your money. It's your friends, your relationships, your family. In everything, be faithful all the way until your death. I don't know what kinds of persecutions you may face along the way, but I do know the God who is in control of it all. And I know what is waiting on the other side. It is the crown of eternal life for all who love him. Should I give up everything this life has to offer, it will be nothing compared to what is waiting for us in heaven. I know it's easy to lose focus. I know it's so easy to, to lose track day after day. So let us remind ourselves, let us stir one another up to these good works each and every day, striving for the prize that is set before us. Let us be faithful to the very, very end.
Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful. Lord, we are so thankful we don't do this alone, that we are not called to the Christian life in solitude, but that you are with us, that you dwell in us, Lord, that even when we go through trials and sufferings and all manner of things on account of your name, you are using it to build us up. Father, I pray, give us courage. Might we be undaunted in the face of opposition for your name's sake. Let us respond in truth and in love, with gentleness, and yet in all what you have revealed to us, Lord, might we be faithful unto your name. Father, might this be the legacy that we leave, one of faithfulness to you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.